everyone. Welcome back to Crime Nor Reason. Each week, we discuss different topics related to true crime, the paranormal, and the unexplained. I'm Natalie, and this week I'll be covering Paul Dennis Reed, the fast food serial killer. And I'm Diana, and today I'll be covering deaths on Mount Everest. So as many of you guys know, Mount Everest is the highest mountain at 29,029 feet and is one of the greatest and deadliest challenges many climbers want to achieve. It takes nearly two months to complete climbing Mount Everest since there are so many safety precautions to take. For example, the higher you get, you'll want to hike back down after a while so that your body can adjust to the changes in altitude. Uh, Staying at these altitude will cause your body to stop functioning properly, so you want to allow time for your body to adjust. And at this point, oxygen levels are extremely low and the pressure causes everything to feel heavier. That was interesting when I found out it took around two months to complete the Mount Everest climb. I don't know, I never thought about how long it would take. And once I saw two months, I don't know, it kind of shocked me. Yeah, that's a huge commitment. I would think maybe three weeks, maybe a month, but obviously not. So that makes me think too that with it being so long, you have to pack so many supplies too. Mm-hmm. That's a lot to carry. It is extremely important to have oxygen supplements, as I was saying, because um, the higher you go, the pressure and the uh, the altitude, there's a lot less oxygen. But surprisingly, many people want to add the extra challenge of summiting without any oxygen. The youngest to climb Mount Everest is was a 13-year-old named Jordan Romero, and the oldest person was 80 years old. Jeez, wow. 13, right? That's insane. People first attempted to summit Mount Everest in 1921, and many people have made this attempt since then. There have been over 300 casualties, and many of them come from avalanches, falls, frostbite, and other health problems and complications. The top portion of Mount Everest, beginning at 26,000 feet, is known as the death zone, which is where oxygen levels are only one-third of what is at sea level, and the pressure begins to affect vital functions. Many feel disoriented and extremely tired at this point. People typically do not survive if they spend more than 48 hours in the death zone, and even though the majority get out successfully, many also have long-lasting issues after the climb. You know, it also seems kind of selfish to me, too, because you have to have a whole team when you're going and climbing it. Mm-hmm. So it's not just your own life you're putting at risk. You're putting other people's lives at risk. Exactly. The ones that do not make it out alive are typically left on the spot where they passed away. And they become a warning. And they become a warning to everyone who decides to continue climbing the mountain. Like I mentioned before, there has been over 300 people who have perished on the mountain. And it is easier to leave the bodies on the mountain rather than put others at risk to bring them down. The first group to die on the mountain were with the 1922 British Mount Everest expedition. And after their second attempt to reach the summit, seven people died from an avalanche. Their bodies were never found. The first body found on the mountain belonged to George Mallory, who loved to climb. He had also served in the British Army and the First World War. George had participated with the previous group on their second attempt But in 1924, he and his climbing partner had disappeared on the northeast ridge of Mount Everest. They had last been seen at around 800 feet vertical from the summit, and after 75 years, his body was finally found by a group who was sent out to find climber remains. His body was perfectly preserved, and there was a rope injury found around his waist, which kind of led us to indicate 
that he was secured to his partner, Sandy, and they were either climbing or descending the mountain when one of them probably fell, but Sandy was never found. So many believe that he could possibly have survived this fall, but perhaps walked away and passed away later on where no one has searched. Mm -hmm. And you said that the body wasn't found for 75 years, the body of Mallory? Yes, right, 75 years. That's so eerie to think that you said it was so well-preserved, too. Right, it was, um, yeah, 1999 is when he was found. To me, that's almost like a time capsule or something. Mm -hmm. It's just really kind of creepy to think about. Yeah, so well-preserved that the injury was still there. Yeah, but I guess with such cold temperatures, the body wouldn't decay as normal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was practically, I mean, he was frozen. And throughout time, many of the bodies have been given nicknames and are very well-known. And I know you're, I mean, we kind of are into the same stuff, so I'm probably sure, I'm sure you've probably heard about this guy, but his nickname was... Is it Green Boots? It is Green Boots. Okay, yeah. yes, I have heard of him. Yeah, he's one of the most famous climbers and is, is known as Green Boots. Before he was moved, every climber had to pass him while they were going to into the dead zone. And he was given the name of Green Boots because of the Green Boots that he was wearing. They were very bright green. And no one, no one is entirely sure of who this body belongs to. So that's why he was given the name. That's so sad. And he ended up being used, I guess, as a trail marker for them. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. From what we understand, during his climb, the weather got pretty bad and he decided to turn back and stop in a cave that was next to the path so that he would be shielded from the weather. Here is where he decided to rest for a while until it was safer, but he never made it out. It's crazy to think that when you're summiting, you see dead bodies as oh, constant reminders of this could be me. This could happen to me. Yeah, and yet they're just going to continue going mm-hmm. on when seeing all these dead people. That's just so scary and intense. Yeah, it is. That would be such a surreal experience. I mean, one that I personally would not want. I know that yeah. there are plenty every year who continue to do this. But. Right. And more than once have tried, you know. Mm-hmm. So Green Boots passed away during a time where there weren't many people climbing Mount Everest. So there was very little opportunity for him to get any sort of help. But as summiting Mount Everest became more popular, there have been more people on the path, which you would think, you know, more opportunities of getting help if you need it. And as nice as the sound, and I'm sure some people are very kind-hearted, there have been many instances where this has not been the case. For example, with David Sharp, he was a solo climber who died in the same cave as Green Boots in 2006. David froze to death after a few hours in the cave. And the thing that breaks my heart is that multiple people, over 40 people, passed him and clearly saw that David was struggling. But they kept on going to reach the summit and did not stop to help. Oh my gosh. Again, that feels so selfish It's to extremely me. selfish. Yeah, I, I think... I mean, I get that you invest all this time and put your own life at risk to go on this trip and to try and, you know get to the top of the mountain but that just seems so selfish to prioritize that over another human life it's so sad i don't know what else to say i mean it was just so selfish (laughs) i know just the idea that you would see another human Mm -hmm. there possibly dying and just pass by and do nothing yeah so this is why climbing mount everest has become pretty controversial from i mean it's controversial for many reasons but these people are practically choosing to overlook someone's you know like someone's dying just to reach the summit 
to say they did it, you know? Yeah, that's really pretty terrible. Mm -hmm. I'm personally not interested in ever climbing Mount Everest. (laughs) Oh, definitely not. (laughs) I wouldn't need to see these dead bodies to discourage me. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Hearing about them is plenty. Um, I mean, I see the appeal of getting, having to, of conquering something very difficult. I get that, uh, that appealed from that perspective, but I just don't, I uh, know. I just don't I, see a good trade-off from it. Yeah. I mean, I understand people like to put them in situations that are very challenging and, mm-hmm. you know, to try and conquer these things. But I think there's probably a lot of other things that are at least safer. Mm-hmm. And some other parts of this controversy of people climbing Mount Everest is the trash. I mean, like like you kind of touched on earlier, well, not necessarily a trash, but it takes two months and you need so much stuff to survive your trip. So people are going to leave things behind when they don't eat. Mount Everest does not have trash cans or recycling bins, you know? So people, as they're climbing, are leaving so much trash behind. Yeah, because probably they don't want to carry it with them any longer because right. it's just it, adding more weight and bulk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to make it harder for them. They don't need it, so they just leave it. So that's obviously not good for the environment. It's like you're already doing something pretty selfish and you're just going to cause more trash for the environment. Yeah, but exactly. I don't know. That adds another level of just selfishness for me. I don't know. And then also, isn't there some controversy, too, about the natives that live in that area that assist with these trips as yeah. well? Uh, a lot of them are known as Sharpas who help a lot of the people carry their stuff and guide them. And a lot of the times they are underpaid. So that's all, another big controversy. And putting it's their like, lives at risk. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But it, um, they get like helicopters and cleanup crews just for all, all of this amount of trash. And it's like thousands and thousands of pounds of trash. And the thing is, I feel like that would be so hard to regulate because you mm-hmm. can't really just tell people not to litter and expect that they won't. Because unfortunately, a lot of people won't do something unless there's some sort of punishment for it. And how are you going to catch someone doing it? Yeah. You know, you can't really have police there or anything at that mm-hmm. level. Yeah. And just food containers like you you have to eat. And if you just like you said, it just causes more weight. But yeah, I am not for people climbing Mount Everest. So yeah, me neither. On top of that, being so reckless with your life and all the people that would have to mourn you if you right. lost your life yeah. and everything. I just can't imagine. I mean, to me, your life is so valuable. I can't imagine putting it at risk for something as small as that Mm -hmm. or injuries i guess some long-lasting effects i I just kind of thought of something remember hearing that one guy speak in uh dinner we had gone to what yeah we were at a work event yeah and there was a guy who had climbed mount everest and he was there who was speaking which yeah that's really cool tell us about your story but at the same time after learning all of these things that happen on mount everest and like the trash and the sherpas i still don't support it but he did mention I mean, he lost like three or four fingers, didn't he? Because of just how cold the weather was. Do you remember? Yeah, that sounds right. And I remember, um, I think at one point he was descending down part of the mountain or something. I think he mm-hmm. was on a rope and he looked over and there was um, a body. Right. That was on one of the ropes or mm-hmm. something along those lines. Or I think had fallen off the cliff at the bottom. It's so sad. And people yeah. do this to just kind of boast about, oh, I did this. I just don't understand. I know. And that's so sad to think that, you know, they would see these bodies and it's kind of just like, 
an object that is there, but that was a human person who well, had a family, mm-hmm. even like stuff. Like I mentioned, uh, with David, he was clearly in distress the and man about the to cave. die. Yeah, and mm-hmm. over forty people just passed him. It's not only when you see the body; it seems like people don't even care when they're still alive. Yeah, I, like they're just so focused on themselves and what they're mm-hmm. doing. Like I understand you are trying to survive. But not only could you die, other people are dying and you could have at least helped prevent that, you know? I don't know. I agree. Um, And if you're doing it all about, you know, the accomplishment, what's a better accomplishment than saving someone's life? Oh, I know, right? Yeah. To me, I'd be way more impressed with someone who did that than someone who just hiked to the top. (laughs) Yeah. My sources were Danielle Halam on YouTube. She has a great video on this. Um, Explorerpassage.com and excitingnepal.com. Cool. That was such a sad and dark story, but it was very interesting and mm-hmm. something I've definitely been fascinated with. So it's mm-hmm. cool to hear more about it. Well, as I said earlier, I have a serial killer this week. And this guy is, I mean, like most serial killers, just an absolutely disgusting human being. And I kind of hate even talking about him or looking at pictures of him. But it's also a very interesting story. Do I know? Paul Dennis Reed, the fast food serial killer. No, I don't know. I'm excited. So it's interesting. This actually took place in Nashville. Okay. Which is only about two hours, two hours from, from where us. we live. Mm-hmm. So we've been there quite a bit. So I'm sure, as you know, Nashville now is really known for its country music scene and all of its tourist attractions. They have the whole Broadway street that's mm-hmm. all these big honky tonks and bars and stuff with all the lights and everything. So it's really now known as a tourist town and especially i think it's like the number one destination for bachelorette trips yeah yeah it's a very big party town but i had never heard of this but starting in the 1970s nashville tennessee was actually a really big hot spot for serial murderers Hmm. so kind of around that time in the 1970s country themed variety shows were a really big business for nashville so that was a lot of industries were based around that But network television had started to cancel these shows in favor of other kind of television programming. So that was a bit of a loss to Nashville, and that led to an economic downturn. And with this economic downturn, unfortunately, murder rates began to rise. So there were a few factors that led to this rise in murders. So Nashville, geographically, it's located in kind of a central location in the country. So it's a major crossroads for long haul trucking. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people that are trekking across country, they'll make a stop there in Nashville. So some of the murders were directly involved in the trucking business. So people who would come to town in these trucks would be involved in murders. And another factor was the country music industry. So as we've seen in places like L.A., unfortunately, a lot of people might move there looking for fame and they might be more willing to put themselves at risk in order to try and see to this fame. So in a similar way, people would come to Nashville to try and make it big in the country music scene. And as I mentioned, they'd be more willing to take risks, such as meeting privately with a music producer. So even in a situation that seems sketchy, unfortunately, a lot of these people had such big aspirations and had moved there, you know, to try and make it big and Mm -hmm. be famous that they might be more willing to let their guard down to try and make it big yeah right because some people think well this could be an opportunity so yeah like this could be my big break Mm -hmm. and there's just really evil people who will take advantage of that 
So people would pose as record agents or producers, and they would do that to try and lure in potential victims. So that's just to set a bit of a backstory that there was a bit of a murder spree, I guess, going on in the 1970s to, I think, mid-2000s or so. So this story is about Paul Dennis Reed in particular, and he is a really just awful person. (sighs) But he was born in 1957 in Richland Hills, Texas, and supposedly he was abused as a child. He had a bit of a rough childhood. Um, His parents had divorced pretty early on. And not only that, but he had hit his head several different times, not just in his childhood, but I think his early adulthood as well. And as we know, this can really change a person's behavior for Mm -hmm. the worse. So he had very terrible behavior from very early on. And this is just absolutely awful. But when he was 16, he was eventually cut off from his family because he tried to set his grandmother and her bed on fire. Wow. So she was in bed and he tried to set it on fire. And not only that, he tried to sexually assault his mother and his sister. And then I think I saw that because of that, he went to go live with his father. And then he tried to sexually assault his other sister while living with his father. So just right off the bat, really, really awful, heavy stuff. Just shows a really deviant personality. And of course, he continued to have run-ins with the law. And in 1983, he was convicted in Texas for aggravated armed robbery against a steakhouse. (laughs) So this is kind of early on setting his M.O. Sorry, I wasn't expecting. Okay. Yeah. he. That's right. You did say the restaurant killer? The fast food killer. Fast food. Yeah. But this was just a robbery. There wasn't a murder. Okay. So he only served seven years of a 20-year sentence. I guess because it was a robbery, it wasn't seen as a violent crime, so he didn't have to serve too much time. So he was eventually paroled in 1990. And he seemed to have these major delusions of grandeur, and he had an obsession with becoming famous, which I think is interesting because it seems to be somewhat of a common factor in some serial killers. Mm -hmm. So he really dreamed of becoming famous, and he even had plastic surgery to improve his appearance. Which I heard that. I don't think it helped. (laughs) Well, let me say, he's just so creepy looking to me. He has, first of all, the thickest neck of anyone I've ever seen. Like, you know that meme of the guy with the really thick neck? Mm -hmm. That's what he looks like. Okay. Really thick neck. And he was described as he was kind of normal looking, but his eyes were just dead. I don't know if I want to see a picture of this guy. (laughs) Yeah, this, this might give you some nightmares. So he had this plastic surgery, and then he eventually moved to Nashville to become a country singer. So he, I think he had a stage name that he would use. I I don't remember what that was, but he would also dress in like full country Mm -hmm. outfits and wear cowboy hats. And he was really trying to fit into this part. But the only thing is he was a terrible singer. So he wanted to be this country singer, but he was not even good. He didn't have any talent. talent. But I think for him, maybe it was more about the fame. But I don't know if you actually want to hear this, but I have a bit of a demo for you. Oh, no. Okay. Play it. It'll just show you how terrible he is. (laughs) Oh, man. I'm ready to suffer through it. He moved to Nashville to be a country music star and even had a demo. (laughs) 
And it's interesting. This kind of reminds me of Charles Manson, mm. if you know anything about mm-hmm. that case. But he had these big dreams of being a rock star and he would write music, wanting to be famous. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that definitely reminded me of that. But of course, his career was not really going anywhere because he was not good at all. So he ended up getting a job as a dishwasher at a restaurant called Shoney's. So I haven't really heard of that, but I guess it's like a casual restaurant chain. Very casual. There used to be one here, but... Uh, oh, you know it? I've never been into it. I've never had their food, but I don't, I've never heard any great things from it. So Yeah, I guess it's a, a restaurant chain in the South. Yeah. So while he was there, he would often talk about robbing fast food restaurants which I guess was kind of weird to his co-workers, but he would basically say like, man, I'm not getting paid enough here. I could just rob a fast food place and make so much more money. But I mean, other than that, people kind of remember him as being a mostly friendly guy. And that was a huge part of his personality. It seemed he really wanted people to like him. Mm -hmm. But he did have a very bad temper. So he was eventually fired from Shoney's after he argued with a female co-worker and he ended up throwing a dish at her head. Oh my God. Yeah, which is awful. I mean, he fully deserved to be fired for that. And so that same night, he ended up going to a Captain D's restaurant. So I definitely know Captain D's. That's also (laughs) kind of a southern chain, but it's like very fast, casual seafood restaurant. Something Um, about fast fish food or something is weird. Yeah. I mean, I think fish can already be kind of sketchy, but then also in a fast food format. No, thank you. Yeah. So he ended up going to that restaurant at around 10 o'clock p.m. So that was shortly before they were about to close. And he claimed that he was interested in a part-time job there. And they were like, um, yeah, okay. So they just gave him an application, even though they were a little weirded out that he had came there after they were already closed. And they told him that he would have to come back the next day to speak to the manager, who was named Steve. So the next day, this was the morning of February 16th, 1997, Reed returned to Captain D's, and only two workers were inside at the time, and this included 16-year-old Sarah Jackson, who was a high school student who worked there part-time, and there was also 28-year-old Steve Hampton, who was the manager. Sarah's mom describes her as a very typical teenage girl, um, and she had started the job to save money for a car, and she was actually able to buy the car just two weeks earlier. So she was really there to just try and save up money while she was in school. And then Steve was the manager, and he was very happily married, and he had three children that he supported with his job. So, like I said, they were there to open up the restaurant that morning, so sometime between 8.30 and 9 in the morning when Paul Dennis Reed arrived. And he was able to get inside by pretending that he was interested in applying for a job, so I think he had brought the application with him, so they ended up letting him inside. And around 10 a.m., another employee arrived for work, but the doors were locked and he couldn't get inside. And he tried to call the restaurant twice, but there was no answer. So he got a really strange feeling. He suspected that there might be something wrong. So he ended up calling a co-worker's father, who was a police officer. And once they were able to get inside, they unfortunately found the employees, Steve Hampton and Sarah Jackson, lying face down on the floor inside the walk-in cooler, and both had been killed. So Steve had been shot twice in the back of the head and once in the back, and Sarah had been shot four times in the head and once in the back. So it was believed that they had been told to lie down and that he just wanted money, so they probably thought if they cooperated, Mm -hmm. they would be okay, but once they lied down, they were shot, unfortunately. And $7,000 was taken in the robbery, and this included money from Steve's wallet. That's so sad. (sighs) 
this is just like this case kills me because he was going there and robbing the places but obviously he could have just taken the money he didn't need Mm -hmm. to kill them but some sick part of him wanted to do that you could tell so initially i didn't think it was premeditated at first i was like oh didn't but i guess he he had this plan the entire time yeah so i think i wonder that he went there the night before if maybe he had been planning to do it that night and he just ended up not doing it or if that Mm -hmm. was his way of staking out the place i guess yeah and then so from that money that reed took he ended up using that money to put a down payment on a car this asshole i'm sorry just yeah that's disgusting that's the value that you put on a human's life is just money to go get a car so this murder really shook nashville because it seemed so senseless Mm -hmm. if he was trying to rob this place you know usually you wouldn't just kill the workers you just take the money and go I mean, people are pretty compliant in situations like that because they value their life more than the money in a cash register. Right. So people couldn't really make sense of it. And the whole city was kind of afraid. And it got even worse when a month later on March 23rd, Reed ended up striking again. So that night he went to a McDonald's in Hermitage, which is another city in Tennessee. And he approached four employees as they left after closing. So he forced them back into the restaurant at gunpoint And much as he had done in the first murder, he had forced them to lay down and he shot three of the employees. Um, Unfortunately, all three of them passed. So these victims included 17-year-old Andrea Brown, 27-year-old Ronald Santiago, and 23-year-old Robert Sewell Jr. So Reed attempted to shoot the fourth employee, who is 30-year-old Jose Antonio Ramirez Gonzalez, But I saw his gun malfunctioned or he was out of bullets. For some reason, the gun did not go off. So Jose took this opportunity to jump up and attack Reed to try and defend himself. And he was fighting with him and wrestling with him when I guess Reed grabbed a knife. And he ended up stabbing Jose 17 times, which is just awful. Yeah, and he so he took $3,000 from the cash registers before fleeing. 3000 Yeah, just $3,000, and you just, well, it seems like he killed four people. But actually, Jose was still alive at this point. So Jose was the one who was just stabbed 17 times, and he was able to survive because he just laid there still, so kind of pretended that he was dead so that Reed would leave. And once Reed was gone, Jose called 911. So I have a brief clip of that phone call that I'll play. Okay. If you're a little bit triggered by this stuff, I would skip ahead. my heart he didn't even speak english i know so strong of him to be able to Mm -hmm. just be stabbed 17 times and then to be smart enough to pretend to be dead and then to get to a phone and be able to try and communicate this that's just a lot Mm -hmm. and so he was really in very bad shape when they arrived on the scene but he was still alive so they took him to the hospital and they treated him for his wounds and At first, he was so bad off that I think within the following days, he couldn't even communicate because I think his throat had been slashed. Mm. I think there was some sort of 
um, yeah, that he couldn't communicate. So they would ask him questions to try and gauge who the man was. And then ultimately he was eventually able to talk and he told them what had happened. So they were able to conclude that it was probably the same person who had committed the murders at Captain D's restaurant because they had very similar patterns. So in both cases, the people had been ordered to lay down and were killed while they were laying down execution style. And also that they were both fast food restaurants that were fairly close together in the same area. And because of this, a lot of fast food workers end up quitting their jobs, which I absolutely would be quitting at that point. But unfortunately, probably many people can afford to quit. That that was their livelihood. So they really had to put themselves at risk for their life to go to work. Sorry, I just thought about the pandemic that is happening now. A ton of people can't afford to not work. Yes, exactly. And they're putting their life at risk. Yes, it's the exact same way. And so they tried to put in some modifications in place. So they would like reduce some of the hours. Um, They would have greater police monitoring. But if you think about it, there's so many fast food places. There's so many restaurants. It could have happened anywhere. So that's like really impossible to predict where it was going to happen. So unfortunately, there was another attack one month later. So on the night of April 23rd, Reed ended up going to a Baston Robbins that was in Clarksville, Tennessee. And the shop had already closed for the night, so they were kind of getting everything together and were probably about to leave soon when Reed went to the door and he persuaded the employees to let him inside. No! So I don't know what he said to persuade them. I guess he must have had some level of charm. Um, But yeah, I cannot imagine being an employee working at this time and then letting this creepy guy in. Not to blame them at all. but No, not at all. Yeah, that's just a really scary situation. So unfortunately, once he was inside, Reed kidnapped the two employees who are 21-year-old Angela Holmes and 16-year-old Michelle Mace. So Angela Holmes, she was 21. She was actually a wife and mother to a young daughter, I think. And 16-year-old Michelle, she just worked there part-time. She was a high school student. So all these victims are all so young. young. Yeah, that's so sad. And once he kidnapped them, he ended up driving them to the nearby Dunbar Cave State Natural Area. And so that night, Michelle's brother, Craig, he arrived to pick her up and he found that no one was there and the the cash register was open and empty. So immediately him and his mother got a really bad feeling. So they called the police and everything was searched and they really found no evidence of any disturbance there. It was like the girls were just gone, but they pretty immediately knew that it was probably something to do with the string of fast food killings. And unfortunately, the next day, their bodies were discovered Mm -hmm. at the Dunbar Cave State Natural Area and their throats had been slashed and there was a lot of violence done to their body. I'll just leave it at that. And this was just so devastating to all of the families of these victims. And they felt like they just had no answers. And no one really knew when this thing was going to end, that it just kept continuing to happen. And it even seemed like it was escalating. Because in this case, he took them away from the restaurant and killed them in a very brutal fashion. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like the other ones where they had been more executed. That hurts so much. Just thinking. Because I've had to pick up my brothers. And how scared would I be for that to happen, you know? Yeah, I think that you immediately have a feeling of something's not right here. Mm -hmm. And then just letting your mind run with the possibilities. That's just so terrible. So all of these were unsolved for the moment, which was really throwing the town kind of haywire because they had no answers. 
But eventually, Reed was arrested in June and he was linked to the crimes. So he was caught and arrested while he was attempting to kidnap and kill the manager of Shoney's, the place that he had worked, who had fired him. Because he went to his former boss's home and he was trying to demand to get his job back. And he was threatening him with a gun and being really crazy and trying to get him to come in the car with him. I don't really know what his plan was here, but I guess he had robbed all this money. I guess he had spent it all on frivolous things. Mm -hmm. So he kind of had run out of all of it and he wanted his job back. Also, I feel like he probably found it easy to go and kind of harass his old boss because he's gotten all more confident yeah like he was emboldened by all of this right so luckily his former boss was able to shove him away and he closed the door on him and you know locked the door and he ended up calling the police good and so like i said reed was arrested and he quickly became a suspect in the fast food killing shortly after he was arrested because as i mentioned before he had a record of committing a robbery at a steakhouse in texas So he already has shown a pattern for doing this sort of thing. And then also on top of the fact that the night before he had committed the first murders, he had been fired from a restaurant. Mm -hmm. It just seemed to fit that that could have been the cause of what started all of this. So witnesses testified that Reed was the man who had came by Captain D's the night before the murder. And there was a few other witnesses who had seen him at other points as well. And then the star witness really was Jose Antonio Ramirez Mm -hmm. Gonzalez, who was the one who had survived And that's got to be so terrifying, but also really brave of him to be able to face down the person who had tried to murder him in court and be able to say, you know, that was him. He did it. So that was really what helped nail home that that was who had committed the murders. And then there was also a lot of forensic evidence that connected Reed to the crimes. So there was some blood evidence from the victims that was found on his shoes and just a few other things. I think there was some evidence that was found in his car. So he was eventually convicted on seven counts of first-degree murder across three trials, and he received seven death sentences for his crimes. So at this point, Reed's family was arguing that Reed was mentally incompetent, and they tried to appeal to lessen his sentence. It's interesting to me that his family was still sticking by him after all this terrible stuff that he had done to them. Yeah. I mean, I guess clearly there was something wrong with him mentally. But I guess it was unclear if that was enough um, to lessen his sentence or change anything. And he did demonstrate some abnormal behavior. So he had claimed that he was under government surveillance and he believed that his trials were mock trials and that the attorneys were actors playing a role. So it does seem to show some confusion with what is real and what's not. However, He had told psychiatrists in the past that he would pretend to have delusions to avoid prosecution. So he's really just that could be possible as well that he was trying to, I guess, play it up to lessen his sentence. And while he was in prison and awaiting execution, this was delayed because his family was making appeals. Um, He ended up passing away due to complications from pneumonia in 2013 at the age of 55. So a lot of the families, they felt that they were just glad that he was gone, even though it wasn't by the law. Mm -hmm. Um, But they at least did have some closure that they knew who did it. They knew what happened, um, even if it was totally senseless and obviously still very terrible for them. And he was a suspect in similar murders that had happened around that time. But none of these were ever concretely put on him. 
But one of these was the 1993 Brown Chicken Massacre in Illinois. So seven people were killed during a robbery that was in a restaurant. So that also was very, very similar to his pattern. And he was also a suspect in the killings of three people in a bowling alley in Houston, but was never convicted for either of these crimes. So my sources were anetv.com, Reddit, Murderpedia, and a documentary called The Cold Blood, Paul Reed, The Fast Food Killer. Thanks for joining us this week. If you would like to see pictures from this episode, you can follow us on Instagram at Crime Nor Reason. Also, we'll be on a short hiatus until September 30th, but don't forget to join us then for a brand new episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.